You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Next, and I will read the psalm first of all, and then we'll just spend a wee while looking at it. For the director of music with stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shields and the swords, the weapons of war. You are resplendent with light, more majestic than mountains rich with game. Valiant men lie plundered. They sleep their last sleep. Not one of the warriors can lift his hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both horse and chariot lie still. You alone are to be feared. Who can stand before you when you are angry? From heaven you pronounced judgment, and the land feared and was quiet. When you, O God, rose up to judge, to save all the afflicted of the land. Surely your wrath against men brings you praise, and the survivors of your wrath are restrained. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all the neighboring lands bring gifts to the one to be feared. He breaks the spirit of rulers. He is feared by the kings of the earth. Well, we'll look at this psalm. It's on page 588 if you have a copy of the Pew Bible. What are we doing here? We're worshiping God, but... What is God like? And how is what we are doing here going to affect us tomorrow? When we look at this psalm by a man called Asaph, more than two and a half thousand years ago, it doesn't immediately connect the names Judah, Salem, Israel, Zion, God of Jacob, They're not terms that we use on an everyday basis. And I think as we look at this, I hope that you'll see how it does impact and how it does affect us. But I want to say this, and this may not immediately be what you are looking for, that when we come together, what we are doing is we are seeking God's face. We are seeking to know God. We are seeking to worship God. We are seeking God's help. We are are conscious of our own need. And sometimes we are even conscious that we're not conscious enough. And it can be hard and it can be difficult as we gather to worship God. And yet that's what we are here for. John Owen says this in The Glory of Christ, there is no glory, no peace, no joy, no satisfaction in this world to be compared with what we receive by that weak and imperfect view which we have of the glory of Christ by faith. Yea, all the joys of this world are a thing of naught in comparison of what we so receive. Now, what he's saying there is just a very, very simple thing. He's saying all the things that you're looking for all the things that bring you joy, all the things that give you pleasure, there is nothing compared with the glory of Christ. 
Now, um, I like cycling, and thankfully for you, I cycled down here in shorts and a shirt and had left my clothes at home. And to spare you the embarrassment of me standing here in shorts and a stupid T-shirt, Annabelle turned up as a good wife uh, with the right clothes. Um, but I do. I love, I love cycling. And yeah, I haven't been able to cycle since my accident in November. And yesterday I got to cycle out along the Dixie Burn and uh, down to Broughty Ferry and um, see the queues of people outside the ice cream shop resist the temptation. Uh, and just to go along the Tay and to look. And it was just, it was just joyful. It was wonderful. It was great. And there are people today that look at the weather and go, oh yeah, this is great, go out, go do a hill walk, go and do this, go and do that. And the idea of sitting in a church, listening to someone talk about God, how does that compare? Well, here's how it compares. There is no glory, no peace, no joy, no satisfaction in this world to be compared with that weak and imperfect view which we have of the glory of Christ by faith. There are things, you can think of things that you like doing. I, I mentioned cycling, but there are other things that you like doing. You, the pleasure that you get from music, the joy that you get from being involved in sport, the, the, <coughs> the wonder of being with your family and so on. But nothing compares with knowing God. Nothing compares with knowing Christ. And that's what we just reflect on this morning. Now, the connection for this psalm in the New Testament for me is uh, Revelation chapter 5. And I want to read just the first few verses of that. We will be referring to this chapter as we go through. It's on page 1237. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. That scroll, that picture, that image is John wondering looking and seeing what's going on in the world, what's happening, how can we make any sense of this? And no one can open except the lion of the tribe of Judah, and that is a reference to Jesus Christ. Now, this psalm refers, although the word lion actually isn't isn't in it, it refers to God as a lion, and I think it's a psalm, like all the songs, the psalms speak of Christ. And I hope as we look at this, you'll see something of the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. It's a song that was written almost certainly uh, in response to the time that uh, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, was attacking Judea and Jerusalem. And it looked as though Jerusalem was going to be completely destroyed and overwhelmed. In verses 1 to 3, it splits easily into Um, three parts divided by the word selah, which is a kind of musical term. And this first part is just simply saying, well, two very simple things. Number one is God reveals himself. How do we know God? God reveals himself. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. He revealed himself in Judah. 
Now let me just make a, a, a brief um, sidetrack here, but nonetheless an important one. That is saying in Israel, in Judah, amongst the Jews, God is known. And whilst you get people like St. Augustine who look at this and say, well, now the Jews today have rejected Christ and so on, I still think that we need to look and we need to realize that without the Jewish people, we would know nothing of Christ. We are always indebted to the Jewish people. Salvation is from the Jews. That's what Jesus said, John 4, 22, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. I do hope that you will come and hear Christian witness to Israel because it's very, very important. There's a wrong teaching uh, in some Christian circles that the Jews don't need to be saved. Yes, they do. They need to come to know Jesus. Paul needed to be saved. Peter needed to be saved. Mary needed to be saved. And they were Jewish people. They needed to know Jesus as their Savior. And we still need that. But my fear is that the Christian church is neglecting the Jewish people in two ways. One, by thinking they don't need to be saved. But the other is by acquiescing in or going along with the anti-Semitism, the anti-Jewishness that is deeply ingrained in European culture, including in British culture. Why are the Jews so hated? I, I, to me, it still puzzles me enormously why the Jews are so hated. And I think, uh, to me, it, the only answer that makes any sense is it's the devil's work. You know, the Jewish people, they, I was at a, um, a meeting not so long ago in the Scottish Parliament, and I sat beside one of the Jewish representatives and I had said in the course of the meeting that I thought anti-Semitism was on the rise. And people were going, oh, don't be ridiculous, don't be ridiculous. And he spoke up and he said, no, it's true. And he described some of the things that happened to him. And he's talking about Jewish people now leaving Glasgow because they're so scared. Um, and we need to remember that. We, we owe a debt to the Jewish people. We need to pray for them. And we need uh, to pray that the Lord would work in their lives. I, I, I love it when I meet Jewish people who've become believers in the Jew, Jesus Christ. In Judah, God is known. The important thing is that God is known and his name is great. And one of the names, the names of God reveal who God is. Um, that How we find out who God is is through what he has made, but mostly through what he reveals. And he reveals himself in his names, reveals himself through his word. And here, the name, if, if you see verse 2, the NIV translate his tent is in Salem. The word that is used there is a word that's always used for a lion's den. And what is being used in this psalm is an image that's used throughout the Bible, and of course, which C.S. Lewis picked up off the Narnia tales of God as the lion. And that is something that is really, really important. Um, no matter where, what is happening to the Lord's people, our God is, has th this image of a lion, and it's an image of the Lord living amongst his people 
and the Lord defending and protecting his people. So much so that in verse 3, he broke the flashing arrows, the shields and the swords, the weapons of war. And that's simply saying that when we have our faith and trust in God, it is not that we never experience troubles and difficulties, but it's that all the weapons that are used against us, God ultimately defeats. He is the lion of Judah. And the simple application of that to us is, what do you face now that God cannot deal with? It may be a situation like Israel faced where overwhelming forces against them, death and destruction all around, and there seemed to be absolutely no hope. It may be that kind of situation. It may be a very distressing situation in your own life. It may be personal issues. It may be awareness of your own sin. It, it, it may be illness. There are so many different things. But if we have our trust in Christ, then there's nothing that we face that he cannot deal with. Jeremiah 25, 38 says, Like a lion, he will leave his lair, and their land will become desolate because of the sword of the oppressor and because of the Lord's fierce anger. So in the, the first stanza of this song, we're being told that God reveals himself, that God is the lion, that God protects his people. And then verses 4 uh, to verse 9, it talks about who this God is. You are resplendent with light, more majestic than mountains, rich with game, radiant with light. Well, those of you who know the Narnia tales will maybe recall how C.S. Lewis describes Aslan as huge and shaggy and bright. It's such a great way with words. And again, it's an image in the Bible of you are the shining one. And there's this idea of Jesus as being glorious in a sense that it's reflected something glorious in terms of the brightness of the light, but just glorious in who he is, glorious in his character. If we were aware of who Jesus is, if we were aware of being in his presence, then the glory would be such that we would fall on our faces and worship. It, it's strange, isn't it? That kind of, we've got a contemporary Christianity that thinks, well, Jesus is, is here and um, let's give Jesus a clap and Jesus is a really good guy and uh, isn't it all wonderful? And, you know, you get in discussion with someone about different lifestyles and they say, it doesn't matter, Jesus is love and Jesus blesses everything that we do and Jesus wants... Actually... Our Christ, our Jesus, our God is the Lion of Judah, and the angels fall down in worship before him, and we think as sinful human beings that we can pack him up, pack him, pat him on the back and say, hi, Jesus is cool. You and me, we're okay. I think when we come into the presence of Christ, it is something that is actually quite overwhelming and something that I hope that we long for. Because here, it talks about more majestic than mountains rich with game. Now, 
Um, sometimes that's translated the eternal mountains. What's that about? I think it's still on the lion theme. The lion goes out hunting and comes back with glory. Now, what happened here was that the Assyrian army was wiped out. They were about, about to wipe out God's people. But we read in 2 Kings 19.35, the angel of the Lord appeared and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. They went to bed at night thinking probably this is our last night. We're going to be destroyed. We can't take on this foe. We can't defeat this people. And they woke up and they were all dead. I mean, it's, in one sense, it's a horrible story. But it's an awesome story. It's an incredible thing. There's this, just this victory in verses 5 to 7. It's valiant men lie plundered. They sleep their last sleep. Not one of the warriors can lift his hands. These warriors who are going to come in and slaughter you, they can't lift their hands now. They're done. The voice of the Lord, says Isaiah 30, 31, will shatter Assyria. With his rod, he will strike them down. This is what the Lord says, Isaiah 31, 4. As a lion growls, a great lion over its prey, and though a whole band of shepherds is called together against it, it is not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. So the Lord Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights. They won't be able to lift their hands. You know, you read these things. There was, there was a, a cover from Time magazine from 50 years ago, 60 years ago, actually. And it's a very famous cover, a red cover with the simple black headline, God is dead. It caused a great deal of controversy in 1966. The cover from Time magazine this week, same cover, red, black, truth is dead. Well, the two things go together, and whoever designed this week's cover was obviously reflecting on, on, on what had happened before. We live in a post-truth society. God is dead. Truth is dead. And sometimes you look at things, and I, maybe, maybe it's just the kind of people that I read or attract, and maybe none of you have this, but man, we live in a weird world, and there are some very seriously weird people. I've, I've met serious flat earthers in the past week. I'm going, what? You're joking me. But no, 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 apparently the earth is flat. And how do we know it's flat? Because the Antarctic is a giant wall of ice that stops us falling off the end. And these, these are like intelligent people. They've got PhDs and stuff, which just goes to show you. Well, no, I won't say what it goes to show you. Work it, <laughs> work it out for yourselves. Um, you know, it's like, what? And then the horrible attack in London... And somebody I know who's, who I've got great respect for and very intelligent says this was a British, British uh, uh, government false flag operation to try and divert attention from the Scottish Parliament. You're kidding. But people believe that. They believe it. All different kinds of things. And, and, and once, you, once you've said there's no such thing as truth and truth is what you feel it is and truth is what you read on the internet and truth is whatever you want it to be and truth is whatever you filter, you end up in this chaotic, hellish world where it seems as though nothing, nothing, nothing makes any sense. And God says, no, no, I'm not dead. Christians, you see, Christians can despair. And we have no reason to despair whatsoever. None. We have no reason to despair because the world hasn't changed. Sin is still sin. The devil is still the devil. Human beings still screw things up. 
and God is still God, and Christ is still Christ, and the Lion of Judah is still on the throne. Because it's a victory against his enemies, but it's also a victory for his people. Verses 8 to 10, from heaven you pronounce judgment, and the land feared and was quiet. When you, O God, rose up to judge to save all the afflicted of the land. Somebody wrote me this week and said, David, this is just terrible what you teach. Terrible because, you know, don't you understand Jesus' love and, and tolerance and that's where it all begins and everything comes from that. And how can you mention judgment? And because I'm looking at this, I'm like, well, the reason God's judges is to save all the afflicted of the land. It, it is, God's judgment is for justice and for fairness and for righteousness. It's for the poor. It's for the oppressed. It's for and, or against the injustice. He comes to save the afflicted and the downtrodden. The land had been in turmoil. Now it is quiet. There's a great example of this, of course, in Daniel. Daniel's 3.17 where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the blazing furnace. And before they're thrown in, they say this, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Oh, that's nerve. You're standing there before the ruler of the world, as far as he's concerned, with all his mighty army, all his power. He's just built this massive blazing furnace to, to, to kill you. And you stand there and you say, the God whom we serve is actually greater than you and he's able to deliver us if he, if, he, if he wishes to. He's able to deliver us. And they are rescued. And of course, Daniel, as you know, thrown in the lion's den, but saved by the lion. And that's why this song doesn't um, despair what's wrong in the world but just amazing look at look what it says verse 10 surely your wrath against men brings you praise or it's possible you translated human anger brings you praise either way I think it, it it works the wrath of man shall praise you how is that possible when human beings are angry with God it just rebounds you know we've got such an arrogance we think we can be angry with God and that will affect him and he'll be upset, oh, I better not do this because they'll be angry with me. That's not how it works. It's the other way around. It's God who's angry against injustice and wrong. He puts right all that's wrong. In Revelation 6 verse 15, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? You know, it's human nature for us to tell God how to help us. It is his wisdom to do it his own way. As Calvin says, although at first the rage of the enemies of God and his church may throw all things into confusion, and as it were envelop them in darkness, yet all will at length redound to his praise. Even the wrath of human beings even our sinfulness. That's who our God is. Our God 
turns it all. I think we're going to take communion in a moment. And perhaps the greatest story of that ever happening is the cross. Acts 2 verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And the devil thought he'd won. And the Roman authorities thought they had power. And Pilate thought he'd manipulated. And the Jewish leaders thought that they had controlled and contained the situation. And yet God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge was to let all that happen so that the devil would be defeated and that the kings and religious authorities of this world would be overturned. And then verses 11 and 12 of the psalm. Make vows to the Lord your God. What should our response be to the Lion of Judah? Well, we're to pledge loyalty to him. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. We have to live as servants of the king. In Narnia, where it was always winter and never Christmas, there were always those who were just faithful, not to the, to the, the white witch or the snow queen, but to Aslan, whom they hadn't seen for a long time, whom they hadn't experienced for a long time. But, you know, there was Beaver, Mr. Timus, there was others as well. And, um, by the way, if you've never read the Narnia stories, get on with it. And if you read them as children, read them again as adults. Because, like all great stories, they're actually much better as adult stories. I love reading them. I, I would read them over and over again. I mean, I just, I'd quite like some more grandchildren. In fact, if you want a babysitter, I'll come and read Narnia to, you, to your kids. Because it's just a great excuse But in Narnia, there were people who remained faithful, and there were people who remained faithful to Jesus. Why? It's an interesting thing, isn't it? He is the one to be feared. The fear. Literally, that's what it says. Um, Bring gifts to the one to be feared. And it's just literally bring gifts to the fear. That's, you know, God is love. We like that. That's good. It's nice. But God, the fear, I, I think, I, I actually think it's just the more you know it, the more you realize what a great title that is. Why? The Lord Almighty, Isaiah eight thirteen, is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. See, our only safety in a threatening world is him. We do not need to be afraid of the lions. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid of cancer. We don't need to be afraid of enemies, of political situations. We don't need to be afraid. There is only one to fear, and that is the Lord. And he's the one to fear who's not capricious and and manipulative and cruel. We fear him because he is awesome, but he is also good. And so it is a good kind of fear. And that comes back, I think, to Jesus Christ and to knowing who Jesus Christ is. There are people you admire. There are some wonderful and incredible people in this world, and there are people who you will have as heroes and so on. But at the end of the day, they will always let you down, even your mother. 
You know, let's not deify our parents. They're human and sinful as we are. But there is one person who will never let you down and whom you follow and who you'll just never grasp how great he is. And it's, it's an old one, but I'd, I'd like to read this again. It's, and for those of you who have never heard it, it's fascinating thinking about what the rulers of this world think of Jesus Christ. And in particular, I, I find fascinating Napoleon. Now, this is a very famous quote of Napoleon, but actually there's a lot he, he said about Jesus, and particularly towards the end of his life. And I find it quite difficult to believe he could write this without being a believer. This is when, when he was on, exiled on St. Helena. And he was um, thinking about this in exile. And he had a, a friend called Count Montholon. And he called him to his side one day and he said, can you tell me who Jesus Christ is? And the Count, I, I think, thought it was a trap and didn't say anything. And Napoleon responded, and this is what he said. He said, well, if you can't tell me, I will tell you. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself have founded great empires. But upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love, and to this very day, millions will die for him. I think I understand something of human nature. And I tell you, All these were men, and I am a man. None else is like him. Jesus Christ was more than a man. I have inspired multitudes with such an enthusiastic devotion that they would have died for me. But to do this was necessary that I should be visibly present with the electric influence of my looks, my words, of my voice. When I saw men and spoke to them, I lightened up the flame of self-devotion in their hearts. Christ alone has succeeded in so raising the mind of man toward the unseen that it becomes insensible to the barriers of time and space. Across a chasm of 1,800 years, Jesus Christ makes a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. He asks for that for which a philosopher may often seek in vain at the hands of his friends or a father of his children or a bride of her spouse or a man of his brother. He asks for the human heart. He will have it entirely to himself. He demands it unconditionally. And forthwith, his demand is granted. Wonderful. In defiance of time and space, the soul of man with all its powers and faculties becomes an annexation to the empire of Christ. All who sincerely believe in him experience that remarkable supernatural love towards him. This phenomenon is unaccountable. It is altogether beyond the scope of man's creative powers. Time, the great destroyer, is powerless to extinguish this sacred flame. Time can neither exhaust its strength nor put a limit to its range. This is it which strikes me most. I have often thought of it. This is it which proves to me quite convincingly the divinity of Jesus Christ. All the rulers of this world, all their empires are based on power and force. Christ alone is different because he's the son of God and he is the ruler 
of the King of kings, and He will have our heart. Revelation 5 from verse 6. Let me just read these words to conclude. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. It's the image of the lion in all its glory on the throne, but it's the lamb on the throne. The lion and the lamb, two very different animals, two very different images, but that's who Christ is. He's the king who died for us. He's the lamb who reigns over us. And that is what we remember as we take communion together. Amen. May God bless his word to us. We're going to sing... Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.